Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, Senior Instructor at New York Film Academy, and in this episode we bring you a legend in the film industry, the Oscar-nominated producer, Frank Marshall. The difference between the producer and the director is the producer asks the questions and the director has to answer. And there are a thousand, every day at least. I promise that if you love films, you love his work. You doubt me? Check out his IMDb page. The Warriors, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, The Goonies, Gremlins, Seabiscuit, Benjamin Button, and over a hundred other movies that help shape modern cinema. I see dead people. They're everywhere. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? I'm saying booby traps. You mean booby traps. That's what I said, booby traps! Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Great Scott! 1.21 gigawatts! Goonies never say die! I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. We're sending you back to the future! Are you Before his multiple Oscar nominations and his movies made billions of dollars, he began his career as a location manager, where he never lost sight of the two most important parts of any movie, the director's vision and the story. I don't think there's any magic way to get there. You just do it. I actually was a location manager after for several movies, but the key for me was I was working with the director and the production designer, and I was understanding what they needed creatively, what the vision of the movie was, and I was learning the production side because I was working in production, but I was also understanding as a location manager, I learned quickly not to show the director something I couldn't get something that was fabulous, and they'd say, okay, get it, and then you'd go and you couldn't get it. So I'd make sure that I could get it first, and then I would show the director the location. But I also understood that if he found something that he liked and said, we got to have that, and then I found out we couldn't get it, I would then present them with an option that was equally helpful to the story. I understood why we were having this one, but how about this one? I know it's a little different, but I think it still works for the story. So I guess when I look back, I've always been driven Correct. by the story right. and what, what the story of the movie is and what the vision of the director is. And, and there are things that you learn as you, you know, simple things like don't pick a location that's right next to an airport, yeah. you know? Uh, <laughs> or something that's far away from a place you can put the crew to have lunch. You know, I remember on What's Up Doc, 150 years ago, <laughs> we were in the center of San Francisco and I had forgotten to find a place for lunch. And I went to a school and I got permission to uh, put our tables inside the schoolyard. It was on a Saturday and the school was locked. Somehow we got in, I don't know. <laughs> and then uh, we signed the papers later. But that's what I love about making movies, is you're constantly solving problems, your challenges. But it's that balance of you're, you're not only solving problems, you're also creating something. And that's what's exciting when I get to sit here and, and see that shot of that boat and know that it was the second time we went there. The first time we only had one day and it rained. And it was a big problem. And we had to go back four weeks later 
talking to the studio who were saying the shot's good enough and my director saying no it's the last shot of the movie and it needs to be sunny and it wasn't sunny mm -hmm. and it's the audience has to you know all the creative <laughs> arguments against the monetary financial arguments it's a give and take and what battles do you fight for the director you know that was one last shot of the movie if it had happened earlier in that sequence back at the dock or something, I wouldn't have fought for it. But it was the last shot in the movie. I understood why it needed yeah. to be that way, and I was able to convince the studio that it was the right thing to do. Mr. Marshall prides himself on a strong work ethic and doing the best work possible no matter the job. Years ago, this caught the attention of a young up-and-coming filmmaker named Steven Spielberg. I think what I've learned most, um, and I'll tell you a little story of how I learned it, it's always do your best, no matter what you're doing. If you're making the coffee, make the best coffee. <laughs> if you're collating the pages of a script, don't put them out of order. I was doing a picture, I was an associate producer of a movie called Daisy Miller in 1972, Peter Bogdanovich, and we were shooting in a little studio in Rome. And I got a call on the set there was a publicity fellow and he was a bit homesick and he said you know he wanted to see some Americans working and could he come by I said sure absolutely and it was Stephen and Stephen was Duel was being released Duel which is his famous TV movie with Dennis Weaver so the next day we always had lunch in the in the cafeteria there and I always had a bowl of pasta at the end of the table and so Stephen and this fellow, um, Jerry, came by, and they were sitting there eating. And I came up, and I asked Peter a question. And I said, oh, nice to meet you. And I went down, I had two bites of pasta, and I went back to the set. And Verna Fields later told me that Stephen turned to her and said, that's the kind of guy I need, a guy who's more interested in the next shot than lunch. <laughs> Five years later, when Stephen was sitting on the beach in Hawaii, the infamous story uh, with, with George Lucas, and they were talking about Raiders, and George said, who do you want to get to produce this movie? Steven said, let's see if we can find that guy, Frank Marshall. Wow. So, you, you never know who's looking or where they're going to go or what's going to happen. And I got that call, you know, the, the one I always remember from George's office saying, uh, are you the Frank Marshall that works with Peter Bogdanovich? And they said, could you come for a meeting? I said, well, let me check my schedule. <laughs> This began a decades-long collaboration, which spawned dozens of Hollywood's greatest movies. It also led to his meeting future CEO of Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy, the woman behind all the latest Star Wars films. She actually started out as Spielberg's assistant when she met Frank Marshall, and the two of them quickly joined forces as producers. Not to mention, they've also been married for 30 years. Decades after Mr. Spielberg indirectly played Cupid, he continues to collaborate with Frank Marshall, uh, most recently on the Jurassic World franchise. Our moderator, Tova Leiter, asked Mr. Marshall what it's like to work for cinema's most famous storyteller. Spielberg, what kind of a boss is he? Oh, he's incredible. I mean, he's so demanding, it's unbelievable. It's really incredible. You know, he just knows the craft so well that it's sort of second nature to him to direct these movies, and he's puts so much into it and he's ahead of you and he knows so much that you're trying to keep up with him all the time. Sure, you know. So it's very exciting to be around him. 
Did we it. sort of grew up together, so it's kind of fun because people kind of go like that when I'll say something to him that's, you know, sort of not appropriate. But it's, it's you're like friends. I mean, we've known each other 30 years now. Yeah, I like to be outside. I like to be on the set. I like to shoot. I like these kind of adventures. And, you know, I think as a, for me as a director, I have to be incredibly passionate about the story. It's really hard. I'm not like Stephen. Stephen can direct and produce nine other things at the same time. I can't do that. If I'm directing, I'm, that's where I am 24-7 in the tunnel. I'm not very fun to be around because I'm, maybe because I'm a producer too, that I feel responsible for taking care of the production and using the money in a way that's so productive. So I want to be prepared and I want to know, because there's a thousand questions a day. And the difference between the producer and the director is the producer asks the questions and the director has to answer them. And there are a thousand every day at least. So I really would need to be passionate about whatever story I'm telling as a director. After working with Spielberg and several of Hollywood's greatest, Mr. Marshall has become adept at recognizing talented storytellers, which led him to a little script that wound up being one of the biggest hits of his career, The Sixth Sense. Ever feel the prickly things on the back of your neck? That's them. When they get mad, it gets cold. Please make them leave. I think the work kept me motivated. I loved making the movies, and it became like my family. Um, and. Uh, I love going to work every day. You know, often I get asked, well, how did I get there? I don't know. I tell a story about, about a young man who, who lives in Philadelphia. He was the uh, youngest of uh, seven brothers and sisters. His parents were doctors. The other brothers and sisters were doctors. Uh, he was the youngest. He went to NYU uh, to film school for a semester and dropped out because he wasn't doing too well. And he wanted to be a filmmaker and somehow his script landed on our desks, and that script was The Sixth Sense. And I don't know how, but the bottom line is he wrote a fantastic script in Philadelphia. And somehow it got passed to this person and this person and it came out here and there it was. And we read it and we bought it and the rest is history. So I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And he, uh, you know, he tried to go to film school, but you know, film schools give you a lot of things that you can't get on the outside, and one of them is see a lot of movies, see a lot of old movies. You know, there is a language that exists in filmmaking, and sometimes you can break it, but you got to know what it is before you can break it. So go look at the masters. Go look at Hawks and Ford and Wells and you know Renoir and and study these movies, and you'll be amazed. You know, um, there's great things to learn in them, and those movies should inspire you then to go do what you want to do. Frank Marshall was so taken by M. Night Shyamalan's screenplay that he risked going with the newer director, but he knew that the story would bring in the necessary talent. Spoiler alert, if miraculously you don't know the ending of Sixth Sense, well, Frank Marshall's about to ruin it for you. It's one of the few spec scripts we've made. We usually make books and uh, magazine articles. But his script read like the movie. That you didn't know Bruce Willis was dead until the last two pages. 
It was unbelievable. I'm reading it, it's really interesting and everything. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, when the ring hits the floor in the script, it's when it hit in the movie. And he was very clever about that. So he had kept the secret all the way through, somehow. It, it was, it's really, if you get a chance, you should look at the script. And that's when I know, this is, this is great, we gotta have this. And there's a little bit of luck there too, and a little bit of history, in that he had a poster of E.T. and a poster of Raiders on the wall in his office. And our offer was lower than a couple of other people, but those two movies, he wanted to work with us. So we brought him out here in the, in the studio, said, okay, we're gonna give you $10 million to make this movie, all in, everything. And that was a lot of money for him, because he had just made this little teeny movie, Wide yeah. Awake. And I said tonight, I said, okay, well, when you wrote this, I bet you wrote this for somebody. And who'd you have in mind when you were for? And he said, well, Bruce Willis. I said, really? I said, I know Bruce. I said, do you want Bruce? He said, well, I can't get Bruce. We only got 10 million. I said, well, there's ways to do this. So let me call him. So um, this is what a producer does, right? So Bruce was shooting Armageddon at Disney, which was lucky for us. And he had a deal at Disney. So I called his agent and I said, I got this script for Bruce. And he loved it. And then became the sort of dance about how do we get him in the movie. And he was um, nervous about a first time director. And so he asked me to be on the set every day. And that was sort of his, his security blanket. So he said yes, and we got Bruce Willis. And um, we got a little more money to make the script. As good as the screenplay was, it needed a test screening to really nail the landing and convince Disney they had a massive hit on their hands as long as the audiences kept it secret. They still didn't believe in the movie until we went to Woodland Hills. But the first Sixth Sense screening, when that ring hit the floor, the entire audience just turned to each other, oh my God, he's dead, oh, oh yeah, and there's all this, and they didn't see the end of the movie at all. The whole end of the movie was completely lost, so Knight was really upset. I said, no, no, this is good. <laughs> Let me tell you, this is a good reaction. And I said to Knight, well, what's wrong? He said, well, you know, they're not getting the catharsis of him letting her go. I said, okay, you're right about that, so what do we do? Knight is very stubborn, and he said, I just want to recut it. And so what he did, if you look at the movie again, is once the ring drops and there's this realization that Bruce's character is dead, we cut back to three or four moments that are reminding the audience, like when he goes to dinner and he sits down and nothing moves and she's sitting there and you think he's having a conversation with her and now you're going, oh, look, he's dead there. And oh, look, and, and so you're reminding the the audience and giving them a chance to collect themselves before he then goes over and lets her go. So value of previews, by the way, you should always preview your movie. And the other great thing was the audience kept the secret. I don't know if you guys remember, but nobody told that they wanted their friends to go to the movie and have the same experience. A lot of people said, oh, I knew, but I knew. <laughs> so it was really a great, great experience. Frank Marshall is no stranger to franchises, Back to the Future, Jurassic World, and of course, Indiana Jones, just to name a few. But bringing the Jason Bourne series to the big screen proved extremely challenging, especially because they had an indie director at the helm. 
The studio was pretty aware of Doug Lyman coming in from a very, very independent background. He had made two very small independent movies that were very good and coming on to this really big studio action-driven movie on foreign locations in Paris and all these different places. And so they hired two producers. One more of a production uh, nuts and bolts kind of line producer and then a creative producer. And at the last moment, the creative producer had to leave. They were already shooting. They were shooting the scene, if you all remember, on the boat in the water where Bourne is found floating in, uh, off the coast of Italy. They were already shooting. And I got the call, and they said, would you like to go to Paris for six weeks? I said, sure. <laughs> uh, and they had an apartment already and everything. So I read the script. Uh, I loved the script. Tony Gilroy wrote the script, who, as you know, did the, all, all of the movies, wrote all of the movies, and directed the last one. And so I went, and the one thing that I can say is that if you're coming from an independent background and you step up into the big leagues, you have to then play by the big league rules. And that took Doug a long time to understand. He understands it now, and he's making these kind of movies now, and he's on budget, and he's doing fine. But he still had a bit of the rebel in him, and he still thought that he could just grab his camera and put it in the trunk of his car and take his friends and <laughs> go shoot on this, you know, and it would be fine. But you can't do that in Paris. You can't take Matt Damon and Franca and go down in the subway and shoot. You, you will get arrested. That's a simple example, but it's really about you have to then take the, the talent that you have and, and the artistry that you have. And Doug really is responsible for creating this series. I mean, it was yeah. his idea to go get the books. It was his idea to, you know, sort of update the character. And, you know, all, well, there are all these stories. Brad Pitt was supposed to play Bourne for a while, and then he went to do something else, and Matt was kind of the fallback guy. So there are all these, a lot of luck. There's a lot of <laughs> chance involved in these things. And, and then just what happened is we, we got off track and the story itself, we start to change the script. Don't change your script. Get your script right before you go to shoot. Big, big, big error that a lot of first-time and independent directors make. Because if you're making a small-budget movie, you can be real flexible and there's yeah. not a lot at stake. But if you shut down while you're shooting on a big movie, it costs a lot of money, and every day is very valuable. So you want to know what, what you're after. Even when working on an action blockbuster like the Bourne series, Frank Marshall still keeps his focus on what matters most, the story. One of the things that, that we have tried to do in the series of movies is take on these kind of challenges and go to places nobody's ever shot before, and there are not a lot left, but that makes it kind of fun. Manila was one of those, but we were there for um, six weeks with the main unit and another three with the second unit, so we were there a long time, and it's, it's a hard place to work in. They're not used to shooting, people shooting and closing down the streets, and you know, just having lunch becomes a big deal. And you have all those extras and uh, you know, just myriads of people everywhere. It's uh, hard to control, and there are a lot of stunts. Tried to do as many of them as we could without um, CG. You know, we have a couple of rules that we, we like to say, and one is no action without being driven by the story. And also that it, it has to be real and it has to be believable. And I think that what happens in a lot of these movies when they 
get bigger than life, you don't believe. You have fun, they're fun, but they're bigger than life and you don't feel right. the kind of grounded reality that you do in this series. It's making filmmakers lazy because in the old days, a simple example is when you're setting up a shot and it's a period movie and there's a modern building in it, you would have to accommodate it by sliding the camera or putting something in the way or you had to get a little creative. Now you just go, oh, we'll paint it out. And you, it makes you not as inspired in, in uh, things as you should be, I think. So sometimes we, we get a little lazy. A student asked Mr. Marshall to discuss his biggest mistake in his career. For all the amazing projects that he's been part of, there's always the one that got away. The biggest mistake, wow. Um, you know, I'm always a positive thinker, so I, I, you know, well, maybe not sticking with the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. We owned the option to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for seven years, which was the length of the option, and uh, we couldn't get it made, uh, mainly because it was too expensive. Every time we would do a budget, that world, that Narnia, was too expensive. And so we abandoned the project in the 90s. And then two years later, CG had really happened. And all of that was possible. And so I, I, Kathy and I always look at that one and say, that one, we missed that one. And I think what I do now is I keep going. And we're, we have a perfect example of that. We're uh, developing a project called Snow Crash. I don't know if any of you know that book by Neil Stevenson. We've had that when we had Lion Witch. And we didn't give that one up. And now it's getting made. Joe Cornish is going to direct it. He's really a wonderful writer and director. So we're getting that one up. So, it, you know, we hung on to it. So that's a lesson we learned. One important message that Mr. Marshall wanted to convey to our students, becoming a producer or director is just one of the jobs on a film set. There's still a lot of amazing work to go around. I know, you know, everybody wants to be a director or writer producer or actor, but there are about 150 great jobs on a movie. You know, there's a person who spends a whole day just taking stills. That's all they do. There's the costume designer, there's wardrobe people, there's a guy who called craft service. You know, don't just try and hit that home run. Try and get on a movie. We're all gypsies, we're a big family, and they're really enjoyable careers to have, and you don't have to have the big one. There's a lot of ways to have a wonderful career, an artistic and really rewarding career in other departments than the above-the-line one. So volunteer to go on commercials and little shoots and things and get experience because that's where you learn what not to do. That's where you learn about you know, what you can do and what you can't do and how a movie gets made. The more practical experience you have making a movie or shooting your own film, that's when you learn that there's screen direction. You know, when you're making your own film, you say, oh, those people look like <laughs> they're not talking to each other. They're both looking away. Well, you shot one of them wrong. <laughs> so that's how you find that out. So do a lot of experimenting. You know, you, everybody can shoot on your phone now and cut it together. So do that. I've always been a massive fan of Frank Marshall's work. I actually try to count how many of his films I've seen, and I lost track around 60. To hear him speak with such humility about his career made me even more impressed. So thank you to Mr. Marshall for speaking to our students, and of course, thanks to all of you for listening. This episode was based on a Q&A, moderated and produced by Tova Leiter. 
To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Toba Leiter, John Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time. One final note. Frank Marshall will be proud to know that this entire episode was done without any CGI, and I even did all of my own stunts.